Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I am fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help communicating or marketing anything, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com and subscribe to hear our next episode. As a podcaster for justice, I stand with my sisters from the Women of Color podcasters community. We are podcasters united to condemn the tragic murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and many others at the hands of police. Find out how you can help at hashtag podcasters for justice. This week, I interviewed my dear friend, Annette Stixrud, who spent much of her life working as an educator and public health nurse in Tanzania, India, and Egypt. She's always inspired me to be the best person I can be. She had to face many obstacles in her life, growing up as a pastor's kid and becoming a professional woman in the 1960s. She's lived a life of service, always advocating for the underdog. Our family calls her Saint Annette. Hello, Annette. How are you doing today? Hello, Marie. I'm doing quite well, thank you. And you? I'm doing well, thanks. So can you share with our listeners about your life? Okay. I was born in Decorah, Iowa. My father was a Lutheran pastor, and so we had to move every once in a while. And we moved from Iowa to the state of Washington. And I grew up in two small towns in Washington, Chewila and Colville. And that's where I graduated from high school. And then I went to Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma. I met my future husband there, Neil. And we waited for a year after college to get married because he was finishing a degree at the University of Washington. I taught in Bellevue, Washington to begin my career as a teacher. And they gave me so many children with health risks. And I decided I needed to know more because I was scared to death the whole time that Mm. something happened. I had one little boy with one lung and he had asthma attacks all the time. I had a little boy hemophiliac. I had a little girl with cerebral palsy. I had a lot of medical things. I was the one teacher that would take them because I wanted them to be able to have a normal classroom. And it helps to teach other kids that not everyone has the same capacity to run around and play. And I just felt it was a whole learning experience, really, for children. And I had read someplace that children that go to school in a classroom where there are other kids that they can learn something new about caring for them, that they will usually lie uh, rise to the task and become better citizens, better people because hmm. of what they know. And part of that influence was Neil because he had an aunt who had been dropped downstairs when she was a baby, never normal. Oh. And she would go into petty mall seizures And Neil was always very calm. He knew exactly what to do. He had grown up knowing what to do. And I thought all of us should know what to do. So after three years of teaching children with a lot of medical problems, I went to nursing school. Did not know that part of your life. Wow. And then in my last year of nursing school, we found 
that we were going to have a baby. And she was born 44 hours after I graduated <laughs> from nursery. <laughs> we always call that planned parenthood. Um, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and, and then I really felt very called. My husband and I had both grown up learning a lot about Jesus and the message that he loved people and he cared for people. And we wanted to be people that cared a lot about other people. Because I had grown up in a family of missionaries, we thought, okay, let's figure out if we can actually go to the mission field if anyone would want us. And because my husband was in school administration and I was both a teacher and a nurse, they sent us to a small school in Tanzania, East Africa. And our students were mostly children of missionaries. But we also had some children that their parents were living overseas because they worked in a company. We also had African children whose parents worked overseas and their parents wanted them to have an experience of their own country. So we had quite a mix. We had about 60 children and we loved them, every single one of them. They were just marvelous kids. And we learned so much from them about enjoying the African people around us. In some ways, at the very beginning, these children were our translators because they all knew Swahili, and many of them still live in Africa and Tanzania. We stayed in Tanzania for a couple extra years and taught at an international school in Dar es Salaam. Before that, we'd lived in a village, and then we found out that there was a closer school to where the missionaries were living that was just opening up. It was an international school, and we told the parents, you know, it's better that your children have much more of an international experience than what they have out in this little village, because we found they weren't prepared to go back to the States. They did not understand other American children at all, and so we felt they needed to be more in touch with their roots, really. Then we came back to the States. Our children at that time were ages five and seven, and we went to Eugene, Oregon, and lived there for three years. And then our mission board called and asked if we would be willing to go to India to a large international school in the mountains in the south. And that place is called Cody Connell. And that's where we lived for the next nine years and had a lot of adventures there. After that, we went to Egypt where I worked with the Coptic Orthodox Church and helped them to find new programs for women because all of their programs were led by men. And so we mm. had to figure out what are the gifts of the women in the church. And so we started a lot of projects. For me, the women knew exactly what to do and what they wanted to do. Was, I, I wasn't much of a consultant, <laughs> I was more <laughs> a listener <laughs> to encourage them to do what they knew they could do. But then what I saw was that people taking care of the children while their parents were working and before they were in public school, that teachers that they had knew nothing about teaching and the children had to sit in chairs and sing hymns all day. And that did not seem to me like that was a very good learning experience. Mm -hmm. Just do one thing. I started, I guess, a little school for the teachers and we had a great time. <laughs> we learned a lot about Cairo, 
because they had just built a subway in Cairo. I think it is maybe the only subway in Africa. It's possible that there are more now. But the girls were so afraid of traveling on the subway. And I said, I'll do it with you. I said, this is an adventure. And so we learned we could kind of go underground through Cairo and just have a great time together. So we we learned the system together. Mm Now, I know you have a different perspective of missionaries than many people. You want to explain a little bit about how you view best of missionary work? I think if anyone goes to a country and figures they know more than the people there do, they're sadly mistaken. I mean, from our eyes, we think we know what they need, and we know nothing, really. Mm -hmm. Some things might be very obvious. We may see people that are hungry, and we know that they need food. But it's only polite, I think, to go and say to people, what do you need? An example, I went to a village because a young man who had just finished college, he was the only person in his village that had ever gone to school beyond the fifth grade, very, very smart. And he said to me, we need a hospital in our village. And I said, well, let's talk about it. So every month for three years, I went down to that village and we would sit and talk about what it was that they really needed. And at the end of three years, they said, you know, we just need to know how to prevent the illnesses that we are seeing. They had a lot of neonatal tetanus. They had a lot of intestinal worms. There were just a lot of health needs that were preventable and We really needed to address those things rather than build a hospital right away. And I never said I wouldn't build a hospital. All I said was, well, let's see. And our conversations were wonderful because this was kind of the beginning of the village work. I never did anything that the village did not see as a need. In fact, one of the first villages, I had to walk all day. I had another woman with me and two health workers, and we slept by a stream. And then we went into this village the next morning, and they wanted to talk about, you know, could you build a hospital in our our Mm -hmm. Mm building? And so I said, well, what do you really need? Right away, the men said to me, we need a birthing hut. I said, really, what is a birthing hut? And they said, well, when young women are expecting children, they go into the birthing hut and they have the child. And I said, but is there a midwife or anything? Nope. They have to do it themselves. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's what I thought, too. <laughs> that, oh, interesting. I said, how many uh, young women and how many babies have died? And they actually hadn't had a death for many, many years. Hmm. And I thought, well, okay, they know what they need to do. But the mothers got a hold of me. I did not know their language. Actually, they, they just spoke a dialect. I couldn't understand their language, and they couldn't understand English. But we quickly learned to communicate non-verbally. And they said, no, we want to deliver our grandchildren, and the men know nothing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I said, well, how about if we keep the men happy (laughs) and do the birthing hut? And meanwhile, I have a woman doctor who speaks your dialect, and she will 
teach you a class in childbirth and Mm. teach you how to safely deliver your grandchildren. And a year later, the men had their birthing hut. They had to build it themselves. And I think my health workers probably helped them with some of the materials that they needed. The men had the birthing hut and the women had the knowledge of how to deliver their grandchildren. And the women came up to where I lived, which was quite a walk, as you can imagine, and told me through an interpreter that they had delivered their own grandchildren and they loved it. And they just wanted to say thank you. And I said, whatever happened to the birthing hut? And they said, oh, the men store all their tools <laughs> that they use oh to my gosh. in their <laughs> gardens and farms. That was a fun thing. But really, when you listen to what people need and what people want and not second guess mm-hmm. that you, with your great knowledge, would know because you don't know. Yes, I loved the people, especially in the villages. They taught me a lot about listening, but they taught me a lot of the joy. They worked hard, but they had such joy in them. And I I loved being able to experience that with them. And I know a lot of people have this impression about missionaries that their primary purpose is to convert people. How do you feel about that? Well, God was there a long time before we were. (laughs) I think I learned a lot more about people's spirituality by listening to their questions about God. I think all of us as people have questions about God. And when our whole purpose is to convert them to our way of thinking, it's not very respectful. I felt it was important to listen to what they believed and how they believed. And I knew they were looking for God and they were listening for God in everything that they did. And how could I say, yes, but I have the truth when Mm -hmm. I felt that they knew who God was for them. And I know who God is for me. And I think listening to each other only enriches what we know about God. Did you find that you were working with missionaries who had a different approach to things about? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. I think that may be an unusual approach for missionaries to be there. You're there for accompaniment and to learn from them and to see how you can help them. But that's not always the way missionaries approach things, right? Yes. You know, did people ask me about what I believed? Yes, they did. And I shared with them. But I also wanted to know how they believed. And it's true. This is not the reason that most churches send missionaries to other countries. But I would like to think that their lives were richer and my life was richer Mm -hmm. because we both could share what we believed about God. I guess I would say it this way. It didn't mean that they didn't start thinking about how do Christians believe and who knows what happened with that, how that played out. But I know I became far more informed about what Hindus believe. And I found there were so many similarities. I know people think that's crazy, but it isn't. It's a very rich religion and very devoted uh, Hindus. I I really appreciated what I learned. So thinking back to your early days, let's go back to Washington, being the daughter of a pastor. Well, people aren't always very nice to pastors. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why that is, but pastors, at least my father, got a very, very poor salary. 
And there were six of us children. And there were some people that felt he was getting too much money. And when my oldest sister went off to college, one of the people said, well, that's it. He's getting too much money if he can send his child to college. So there was one person in the church, a very, very poor widow, who got up in church and said, I will make sure that our pastor gets that $100 during the year because I will help to give him some money every month. And this man that had suggested reducing my father's salary said to my father, look what you're doing to her. (laughs) My father said, I don't think I'm doing that to her. Anyway, but my parents always would say, don't look at what people do to the message. The message is good. But what some people do to the message is bad. Realize, hang on to the good. And I always appreciated that with my parents. And all six of us went to college. Four went on to master's or doctor's degrees. And we all helped each other through college. We all worked during the summers. We worked at night after school, in the evening after school. And we looked upon our money as belonging to the family, not belonging to us. And we all made it through school. So that was important to our parents because they taught us the importance of education. That was just never even a question, were we going to college? It was, where are you going to college? Mm -hmm. So a lot of support in that. The other thing about being the preacher's kid was that many times my parents would say, you need to pay attention a lot to children who are being ignored by other kids and Mm -hmm. find out, get to know them and find out who they are and become a friend. And that backfired on me one day because my father had told me the story about how his mother out in a farming community, if she ever heard one neighbor say something bad about another neighbor, she would say, really? They think you're very nice. (laughs) And so I went to school and there was this one girl that the kids made fun of. So I got to know her. And one day one of the kids said, why do you play with her? This is like first grade, second grade. And I said, oh, she is really, really intelligent. She is really fun. And she became much more popular than me. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. But it was weird. (laughs) So do you remember the first time in your life that you first experienced sexism? Certainly not at home. My parents believed girls could do anything boys could do, which was great. Mm. Probably uh, someplace around the fourth or fifth grade, I think, uh, teachers started talking about girls not being able to do math as well as boys and science as well as boys. When I was a sophomore in high school and I took geometry and the teacher said in no uncertain words, I do not like girls in this class because oh. they can't figure this out. Oh my gosh. And I said, well, if I'm going to college, this is a class I need. And I guess at that time, I should have asked a few more questions. But I guess I always had the backup of my parents who said girls are as smart as boys and not to let teachers stand in my way if they didn't see that. Wow. And then I remember you telling me that when you went to college, you were ironing your brother's shirts. (laughs) 
Oh yeah, my brother. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and tell us about that, how that happened. Well, uh, my brother was two years older than I was, and so he was two years ahead of me at PLU. And it was an expectation that I'd iron his shirts for him on Saturday night. And if they weren't ironed, then I had to leave whatever activity I was at early in order to get at least one shirt ironed for him for Sunday. And later on, my oldest sister said, I can't understand that. I taught him in high school how to iron his shirt. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't until I met Neil and I was out on a date with him and my brother came to the place where we were. It was a student activity. And he said, do you have my shirt ready for tomorrow? And I had to (laughs) leave my date and go iron his shirt. And Neil told me the next day, you know, you don't have to iron your brother's shirts. And I said, yes, I do. My mother told me I had to. And he said, no, he knows how to iron. Every other boy in the dorm irons their shirts. He can iron his. (laughs) So that was the end of me ironing his shirt. And that was like 1960, something like that? That would have been about 1950. 58. 58. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I love that Neil was the one who said to you, you know, you don't have to do that. (laughs) (laughs) All all you have to do is to say no. Yes. Yay for Neil. What did your parents teach you about racism? Very mixed messages, but only for a very short period of time. I remember hearing at school that there were black children in the South who wanted to go to school with white children and that the president had sent in, I don't know what we called them in those days, but they were state troopers or federal forces. I call them goons at the moment. Oh, yes, at the the moment. And I came in the door of my home when I had heard this. My question to my parents was, why does the color of anyone's skin make any difference at all? And my father said, it doesn't. And my mother said, it does. They looked at each other like, have we (laughs) talked about this before? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And so then my father asked my mother, why do you think that way? And she said, well, in the Bible, my father taught me that it was a sin of Ham because Ham sinned. That's the reason that he was dark and that, yeah, he was a sinner. So therefore, there was evil and Anyway, my father said, you know, your father was wrong. And my dad never said anybody was wrong. Uh, (laughs) He said, no, he is wrong. In the Bible, it says that God punishes to the third and fourth generation. And he said, Ham is far, far (laughs) further in relationship to the third and fourth generation. So then eventually my father was asked to perform the wedding ceremony for an African-American from Detroit Mm -hmm. and who was at an air base close to us. And my dad invited him to have his fiance come and stay at my parents' home before the wedding in order to get ready, buy the things that she needed. So my mother took her shopping and was stunned when people wouldn't wait on them in the store and that made my mother mad, and you don't get my mother mad. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he, then she could see how wrong it was, the way that Black people were treated that way. Now, you have been a working mother for most of your life. Right. And that is pretty unusual 
you know, when my mom took many years off to raise us and then went back to get her graduate degree and then went to work when I was in junior high, I'm thinking that you must have been unusual in your peer group for working outside the home when your children were little. Well, Lindsay was born, as I said, 44 hours after I graduated from nursing. Then we went to mission school in Chicago for a year when Lindsay was a year old. So I was going to school during that time. Then we moved to Africa and I was helping at the school. I didn't have a job, but I worked a lot. And <laughs> that sounds familiar, Annette. Yes. And it's so, in your life, isn't it? <laughs> I know. I don't know what this is, but I was able to be with my children a lot in Tanzania when they were little because I didn't have a formal job mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So I could kind of leave it if I had to. So when we came back to the States, they were five and seven. And I waited for a year until Corey was in first grade. And then I had a part-time job working for Lane County as a public health nurse. And I got that job, interestingly enough, because I was invited to a prayer breakfast at a church, and they wanted to know about my experiences in Africa and told the story about how the African pastor, who was our next-door neighbor, knocked on our door at 2 a.m. His wife had had a baby about two days before that, and he said that she wasn't able to nurse the child. So the baby wasn't getting any milk, and he wondered if we had a baby bottle and some baby formula so we could start feeding the baby. And I said, we don't have any baby bottles because I was nursing our child. I said, we don't have any milk in a bottle, but I can nurse your baby until the mom gains her strength. And so I taught her that she needed to let the baby nurse before I did so that her milk would come in. And so we did that for, I don't know how many weeks, but it worked and she was able to nurse the baby. Well, I told that story just because that was just the usual thing in Africa. I learned so much from Africans I never would have learned here. So one of the women came up to me afterwards and said, have you ever thought of working for public health? (laughs) Ah, That's how you got involved in public health then, huh? Yes, yes. So they interviewed me. And so a lot of my job that first year was going around and really encouraging young mothers, especially teenage mothers who knew nothing about, I mean, they were the ones that needed a mother, really. Mm. Uh, They did not know how to be a mother to their babies. They probably were experiencing a lot of prejudice. This must have been in the 60s then or 70s. Yeah. It would have been in the 70s, right? Mm. But I loved what I did because the county found a lot of ways to be really helpful to mm-hmm. these young mothers. And I always appreciated that Lane County was so innovative, some of the things that they did. But did you get pushback from any of your friends or your family members that you were working outside the home? I think probably my parents didn't like it very well, but they weren't the kind, let's say they wouldn't be rude about it. (laughs) Uh, Well, and you were working as missionaries. Your dad was a pastor, so. Yes. I'll tell you what probably influenced me a little bit was the fact that Neil had grown up in a home where his mother was a school teacher Uh outside the home. I think that once that Neil went to school, she went back to work hard. So I remember saying to Neil, I want eight kids. And he said, really? You're not going to (laughs) work? Wow, that's great. I love that story. 
<laughs> I mean, that, that was unusual back then, wasn't it? Very unusual that you got that kind of support from Neil and... Probably so. You know, once I started working, I really enjoyed what I did so much that it never occurred to me that I was working. <laughs> uh-huh. Actually, as a school teacher, I must say that I, I went off to teach my first year after college and no one would ever have had to pay me a cent. It was just pure joy being with those children. Mm. So I learned. Well, I think that you have lived a life of service, you know, that you are called to service. I think that is the way I would describe you. Um, And so even if you're not getting paid for what you do, you just do it. It's just, it's, that's just my observation about you, that you are called to it. Right. So what mistakes have you made in your life and what have you learned from them? Oh my. Well, I can think of one that I still wrestle with. A lot. I had worked with Tamil repatriates from Sri Lanka, and they lived under horrible conditions. And one day, one of the Catholic sisters said to me, she knew that there had been a a young mother that had given birth the night before out in one of the settlements that the repatriates lived in. And she asked me, do you think we could go out and see how the mother is doing? And I said, sure. And we went out there and found that there was something definitely wrong with the child. And this is where being a do-gooder is not what you want to do. (laughs) So the sister and I asked the mother if it was possible to take the baby to the hospital. And she said, no, I cannot allow that unless the father says that it's okay to do. And so we said, well, where is the father and can we ask him? And she said, well, if you can find him, he's probably drinking. So we knew that we probably wouldn't find him in very good condition. We eventually did find him. We eventually did take the baby to the hospital. We did get his permission. This child really had horrible physical and mental problems. We don't know what it's like to raise a children in the worst of all conditions. We just don't. And later on, the sister and I, we would go and see the mother every once in a while. And you know, her life with that child was pure hell because he had so many problems. And, you know, it was too much to deal with in the situation that the mom was in. She never complained, but it was obvious that she was tired beyond belief, really, for me. I could not imagine what she was going through. And the sister and I talked a long time about having taken the child to the hospital from our perspective was the right thing to do. But was it right for the family? Was it right to the life that the child was condemned to and that the mother was condemned to. I would say that was a huge mistake Mm -hmm. for me and for her. And and she was Indian. She wasn't a missionary. She was an Indian sister. And she probably knew more than I did. But we both talked a lot about it. And we prayed a lot for that child. And I have no idea the family moved out of the area. I have no idea whatever happened. Chances are the child was not able to live very many years with. So let's talk a little more about difficulties that you experienced and specifically in working with the Tamil repatriates. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Actually, if you read the history of Sri Lanka, the original people probably were Indians, and that would be how uh, most people would define them today. But in about the 1980s, 
between 75 and 80, the Indian government and the Sri Lankan government made an agreement to repatriate, I think they said at first, a million Tamils back into India because they were getting to be a very powerful group within Sri Lanka and the Sri Lankans were afraid of them. And so you probably heard off and on about the fighting that goes on between the Sri Lankans and the Tamils. But about 30,000 of the Tamils were living in the hills in the mountains behind where we lived. And I was told that they wanted some health worker to work with them. So I had two Indian health workers that I was working with. And so I went up by myself because I was afraid of the repercussions to the two health workers I was working with. I wasn't quite sure how the government and how the repatriates, how they were working together. And I found out that the Indians really resented the the Tamil repatriates because they said, hey, we don't need more people trying to get our job. So when I first visited the repatriates who were living in the settlements, which were horrible, horrible resettlements, they were working for a company. And their job was to tear bark off of trees. And the idea was to make tannic acid that was used when you work with leather, some sort of chemical reaction that happens when you use tannic acid on leather. So these people were being hired by this company, but they weren't being paid properly. And they were cold, they were hungry, they had enough room in their little lean-tos that they were living in that they could get a bed. And it was just like one bed for however many people were living in that particular little hut. And they had to cook outside. They had to do pretty much everything outside, except they could sleep under these metal sheets that were leaned against some sort of a structure that they had created. So I was appalled. I could not believe how they were living. And obviously, they needed a health worker. And I decided I would go and talk to the person that was in charge of them in the company that had hired them. And I was able to get an appointment very quickly. So when I walked in the room and this man was sitting behind a desk, he looked at me, glared at me and said, don't you make these people unhappy with their wages or they will get no wage at all. And I said, is this a threat? He went on to talk. And I think the words he used with me was, I'm not a social worker. And I couldn't help but just burst out laughing. I said, I already figured that one out. And so he said, don't make people dissatisfied with their wages. If you want to work with them at all, that's fine. But you keep your mouth closed about wages because we pay them what we can pay them. So I went back up to the settlements and I asked the people that I met up there what had made them make the move back to India. And they said they had lived on tea plantations. They had a house, they had running water, they had health care, but their children weren't able to go to school. Well, obviously in the conditions they were living in, and they were probably about 10 miles away from where the closest school was. So the health workers worked with me and with the people. And we came up with an idea of cohort of children to go to the school in 
Cody, where we were living. And we were able to rent a house and find a wonderful house mother for these kids, for 20 kids, 10 girls and 10 boys. And the house was just happened to be split into two parts. So there was a part for the boys and a part for the girls. And the house mother was so enthusiastic about these children, and she helped them with their homework. She helped them to do so much and taught them how to cook. She, she was just marvelous. And after one year of schooling in the town, all 20 children were able to go from first grade to third grade. It was because they were so motivated and because they got so much support from this house mother. Well, one problem I always had, Children would go home on the weekend, and the boys would all come back with scabies and lice, which we would get rid of during the week, and the girls would always come back, and they did not have scabies and lice. They had taught their mothers how to clean things and how to keep their younger brothers and sisters free from lice. So I was getting a lot of kickback about why in the world don't you have 20 boys? in school. Why would you have girls in school? I had a board that ran this this hostel that I was running. I said to the board, I want to tell you something. And I told them how the girls came back from the weekend and how the boys came back. And I said, if you say one more word to me about that I should have all boys, I will find all girls. (laughs) (laughs) They never said one more word about getting rid of the girls and just taking boys. The children all made it through the fifth grade. And I know that because we left India at that point. The Catholic school was able to help them continue with their education. They lived in dormitories at the Catholic school. So I was very, very thankful. One of the other stories about the children that I I just delighted in was that In government schools, the government gave the school rice, and it was usually a fairly good quality of rice, but they would go out and sell it and buy bad rice that had a lot of little stones and things in it. So the repatriate children got together and said, we're going to start breaking our teeth if we have to eat this kind of rice all the time. We can't take a bite without finding white stones in it. So one day at lunch, they got a plate and every time they would come across a a little stone in their rice, they would put it on the plate. And after lunch, they went into the principal and said, we need better rice. Well, the principal was just so angry with them. He just was, he, he could not tell them how angry he was. So he sent a note to me saying, I want to talk to you at a certain time. So I went up to talk to him and he told me, what are you teaching these children? You're teaching them to be disrespectful. Uh And I said, I thought it was kind of creative how they told you how bad the rice was. He said, you didn't teach them that? I said, no, but if I had thought of it, I would have taught them that. So he said, you need to teach them to be more respectful. And I said, you know, I think you need to be more respectful of the children. And he was just dumbfounded that I would say that to him. I was older than he was, so I could get away with saying it. And I said, these children will not be here tomorrow. They are not coming back to the school because I disagree that you can sell rice and get cheap rice and give it to children that is not the way I have been taught to treat children. The next day, I enrolled all the children into a Catholic school. 
<laughs> and they were well treated and their education was really excellent. So I'm not sorry that happened, but I thought, how creative of those kids to come up with such a great way of letting him know that that was not good for their teeth. Yes, I love that. You know, one of the things I love about you, Annette, is that you've always been brave in speaking truth to power and telling it like you see it and even, you know, speaking out if you see injustice. And I think you are one of the first people I remember talking about your support for Palestine. Can you talk about Palestine and how it has parallels to the current Black Lives Matter movement? I'm trying to think of how I first was... Yeah, how did you first become aware? Because I think you were talking about Palestine long before we had a Holy Land. Yes. Okay, we lived in, in Egypt for four years, and we could take a bus from Cairo to Jerusalem for $40, an overnight bus. So we would have guests in our home in Egypt, and they would want to go to Jerusalem. And we had colleagues that lived in Jerusalem, and one group was working at a school in the West Bank, and the others were working at the International School in Jerusalem. So they showed us both parts of Israel. The Palestinian teacher in the West Bank became a very good friend. And the woman who was working at the international school also became a friend. And I will tell you that I saw both the teacher in the West Bank and the teacher in the international school both weeping about Israel and the treatment of the Palestinians. And to me, it was very obvious how the Palestinians were treated, very much second-class citizens. Everyone I talked to, everything I could find out was how they're just put down at every possibility. And and with the wall now and with all the checkpoints, over the years, like the first time I visited was probably in 88 or 89. And over the years, I know that conditions for the Palestinians have only gotten worse. And it makes me ache that people have to be subjugated to such horrible, well, again, living conditions and hunger and just and watch their children grow up in that. And, and always, I think of what this must do to children. Children are resilient. And for the most part, the Palestinian children that I know have had very strong parenting and very compassionate parenting. But I guess those early trips to Jerusalem, that was the first time I had ever experienced tear gas. And that was not a pleasant experience at mm-hmm. all. But, and we stayed in the Palestinian section of, of town in a hotel. But it's just such a huge problem when one people, the Jewish people, the Israelis, cannot see the harm that they are doing to another group of people. And so I've been very happy that I go to a church that cares what's happening. Yeah. Do you see some parallels there with what's happening now? Yes, I do. I kind of see parallels all over the world with Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And yes, I could see that, of course, with how the Palestinians were treated. And we do the same thing in this country. And that makes me sad. I've just finished reading a book about the Boko Haram girls in Nigeria, looking at how the villagers are perceived in Nigeria as second-class people, and especially Christians, how they're second-class people, and how 
the girls that were kidnapped by the Boko Haram from their school, how this hatred just grows and grows and is so wrong. And how do we get to the hearts and minds of people, I guess, to experience, to try to get in the skin of the other people that they are so harming? How do we do that? I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you've been watching the live feeds and the news about the protests. Like last night, a whole bunch of of the wall of moms were tear gassed and arrested. And it seems like there's a lot of similarities to what is happening in the Holy Land right yes. now as well. So yes, uh, with the, the brutal crackdown on peaceful protest and resistance. Yes, I think you have to start fighting it and find creative ways to deal with it when it first starts. And that's why I'm glad that Portland and always good to hear Kate Brown saying, no, this cannot be happening and you've got to take your federal troops out of here because I think we need to, I'm not sure if we're able to nip it in the bud because it seems to me like it's just getting worse. But I think the sooner that we start educating people and the sooner that we start taking action and the sooner we start really being creative on how we talk with people and how we learn from people that it's important because like with the Palestinians, think of how many years they've lived like this. And what could the rest of the world have done if we had known from the very beginning of the Israel state that this was going to happen? Because I think the Palestinians knew they were, mm-hmm. they lost their homes almost right away, but we didn't pick that up fast enough. And we've right. got to pick this up, what's happening with federal troops right now. Yes. Uh, let's talk about Mother Teresa. What was she really like? Well, the first time I met Mother Teresa, I walked up to the door where she lived and stupidly thought, of course, she's going to be home. As I was knocking on the door, I was thinking, what if she isn't home? <laughs> it never occurred to me that I should maybe write ahead. <laughs> so anyway, I knocked on the door. A young sister opened the door and I said, is Mother Teresa home? And she said, oh, yes, just a moment. And I was looking around the house thinking, oh, this is pleasant and clean and lovely. And I feel this tug on my skirt. And I looked down. Mother Teresa was very short. I said, oh, Mother Teresa. And she says, yes. I told her my name. And then she says, and what brings you to Calcutta? And it was just like, that was the last question I was expecting. Mm-hmm. And I said, you. And she very humbly said, thank you. And so then I told her, I said, you know, I love reading about you. I love knowing about the work that you do. But I have never in my life seen such single-mindedness of someone who wants so much to follow the gospel. And I want to work with you because I want to know about you. I want to know about the single-mindedness because I want that too. And she asked me a few questions about where I was living and all that. And I said, well, I have two teenagers at home, so I won't be coming while they're still at home. But I said, there's, there's one more at home, and I, I think he can cope well without me. And she said, well, you know, I do require you to come for six months. And I said, yes. And she said, and the fact that you are a nurse, I really need you to be working at that time. It was Madras. And I thought, what? I want to come to Calcutta. <laughs> but I didn't say that because I understand that's not the way you talk to Mother Teresa. <laughs> 
Anyway, she said, when you are ready, you write me a letter. I will remember you and I will tell you what to do and who you need to see in Madras in order to start working for me for six months. So I kind of mauled that around a bit. I wasn't sure that I really wanted to work in Madras, but I followed what she said and it was a wonderful experience. And really you do follow orders, but why she sent me to Madras is because they did not have any nurses that were working with them at that time. And they had so many dehydrated babies that would be brought to the orphanage. And to be honest with you, the sisters were far better at the IVs than I was. Uh I I would do them if I had to, but the sisters had actually been taught how to. But where I found I could make a difference was to find medical care. There were so many little girls with cleft feet. You mean club feet? I meant club feet was what I I was thinking. That's one of the things I had when I was a baby. Oh, did you? I did. I had a cleft palate, cleft lip, and a club foot. And I, I had to wear a brace for the first year of my life, apparently. I found a private hospital, and I found that the doctors would do all the care for free. And what happens in India is if you have a club foot, your chance to get married is pretty diminished. And so I felt that the younger these girls could have surgery, the better because then I knew that their chances in life would just improve. Mm -hmm. And that was what I I really did a lot of just making sure that all the children had medical care, that the sisters were able to access medical care when it was needed. One of the things that happened was that the sisters came to me one day and said, they called me auntie. I loved them. Auntie, we have a hospital that takes care of all of our young women who are expecting children. Okay, you have to know that in India, when a woman is expecting a child, she goes home to stay with her mother for a few months. Mm -hmm. And so these girls who had been orphans would come back to the orphanage and be under the influence of the sisters while they were waiting for the birth of their children. So there was a hospital that said, yes, we will do the deliveries. And this seemed to work out for a while, but the sisters came to me because they said that they had had two or three young women recently come and in the middle of the night, there would be someone that would say to them, oh, uh, we need to do a hysterectomy on you because you're having some sort of problem. And of course, these are young, uneducated girls mostly. Right away, I thought, you know, they're taking away their right to have children. I'll bet there was nothing wrong. So I talked to a lawyer (laughs) talked to a man first. That was a huge mistake because he told me all the reasons why that was the right thing to do. (laughs) And I said, no, that's taking away their right to become parents again. I don't think that's a very good idea. So I got a woman lawyer. (laughs) She was mad. And the first thing she said to me, go out and find another hospital that does not do hysterectomies on young women in the middle of the night. (laughs) And so I was able to find another maternity hospital that did that. And the sisters never had problems with that again. Oh my gosh. Is there a story of grit, resilience, and connection that has been an inspiration for you in your life? I can't help but think of Mother Teresa and all the stories that I've read about her. And she's just totally amazing. I don't know if you know this, but she never 
ever has asked anyone for money. That was something that her sisters were taught. You do not ask people for money. If they feel compelled to give, that's fine. But it's not because you have asked. And I thought that was amazing. But Mother Teresa always wrote to people in the evenings. I have no idea how many thank you notes she wrote in her lifetime, but it was a lot. And for her, when she did not feel very confident, she put her confidence in God. I could sure see that. She always would come up with a way to do anything she saw that needed to be done. And she worked so lovingly with the sisters. There were over 500 orphanages and homes for the dying that were set up by Mother Teresa and her sisters. And it said that in these places, Mother Teresa fed 100,000 people a day. And whenever I hear anyone criticize her, I always think, well, when I'm feeding 100,000 people a day, (laughs) maybe I'll start thinking of things that I could criticize. But Mm -hmm. at this point, no. (laughs) So yeah, I guess she's my example of that. Great. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a great conversation. Well, thank you, Marie. I am just waiting for the time I start my podcast and I can interview you. (laughs) Okay, that sounds like a good plan. You know so many people. That would be fun for you to do. Yeah, it would. Yeah, you should do it. (laughs) But I have to learn from the best, and so I might have to take a lesson from you. You're great. Oh, thank you. Terry Gross, look out for your job. Right. Thank you, Marie. Thank you so much, Annette. Now you know why we call her St. Annette. Next week, I'm going to continue my focus on India as I interview Ashwini Prasad, author of How to Write Inclusively. Ash is a South Asian Indian immigrant born in Fiji Islands, raised in Calgary and Vancouver, BC, and who now lives in Portland. Equity and justice are her pillars as an anti-racist educator and screenwriter. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Look us up on fertilegroundcommunications.com. 